Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Graham Russell, outgoing CEO at Media Super. Welcome, Graham. Uh, good day, Alex. Good to be with you. So today's uh, an interesting time you know, in your career. Twenty-one years in the industry. Uh, you're finishing up at Media Super on July one. Can you give the listeners a bit of a backdrop in terms of the, your history um, over the last twenty-one years? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I um, I first uh, got involved in Industry Super uh, as an honorary. Uh, trustee director of Just Super uh, back in 1989, uh, so two years after Just Super had been set up and two years after many industry funds had been set up. Um, and I was just looking at this uh, the other day. In December 89, uh, when I joined Just Super, we had 3,300 members and we had the grand sum of $3.9 million in members' funds. Um, so... It's a long way from $3.9 million to $6 billion uh, today. Uh, so I spent uh, uh, 19 years on the Just Super board. Uh, if we had an APRA through most of that time, I'm sure they wouldn't have been terribly happy with that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, as well as 19 years on the Just Super board, I spent a couple of years on the TIS Super board, which is a timber industry super scheme. And then after Just Super and Print Super merged in 2008, uh, I was uh, two years on the Media Super, the combined board, uh, because I was the independent director on Just Super and the independent directors of Just Super and Print Super both went on to the Media Super board. So um, uh, following that, uh, on the 1st of July 2008, I became the first CEO of First Super, which was also a merger of funds. Um, so on the 1st of July 2008, it was a big day for me. I was involved in the merging of uh, five funds into two to create Media Super and First Super. And I suppose the other interesting thing is that unlike most people, I've come the opposite way. I've come from the trustee board into the CEO's role um, of uh, First Super and then from 2013 Media Super. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, it's been a, an interesting ride and the, and, and the change in the industry hasn't stopped. Um, obviously, the past sort of 18, 24 months has seen a lot more change. Um, I wonder if you can give a bit more commentary on on sort of the, the evolution of Industry Super in the last 24 months. And, you know, in some cases, it seems, you know, highly political, um, the movements that have been happening. Um, well, I guess, uh, look, I think there have been some changes, but, but this has been an evolution uh, rather than a revolution. And even though there have been some significant impacts from things like the early release scheme uh, and, of course, the impacts of the uh, collapse in uh, markets, um, you know, we've been through this before. Um, so, as I said, I joined the Just Super Board in uh, late 1989 and um, uh, what followed was the 1990s recession um, and significant market disruption and economic uh, disruption. Um, so, in fact, now that I think about it, I joined the Just Super Board in 89, followed by a recession. I took up my first CEO role at First Super in 2008. Uh, four months later, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, and here I am leaving at the end of another um, very significant market disruption. So uh, I guess the point I'm making is that we've been, we've seen this movie before. It's just got a different script, I guess. Um, so yes, there've been some changes, uh, but, you know, even if you look at the number of funds, the number of mergers, as I said before, in 2008, I was involved in merging five funds into two. So it's not new news. It's I, I see there's an evolution. Yeah, we have challenges thrown up 
uh, to us along the way. Um, but I think to some extent there are some people who just need to uh, have a cold shower, um, sit down and be a bit calm about it. Um, we invest for the long term. We invest through market cycles. And here we have a market cycle imposed for a different reason, not for an economic reason, um, but nevertheless another market cycle and we just need to invest through it. Um, so, you know, I, there are a lot of people who are talking about great disruption. I don't, I don't see it as, as disruptive uh, as perhaps others do. So when you talk about sort of the disruption, you know, obviously a number of people sort of talk about the disruption in, in forced mergers or, you know, the encouragement for, for mergers. And and some of that's got to do with, you know, the industry change, in, you know, in, in the marketplace. Um, obviously, Media Super is connected to, to the media industry. That's had a pretty, um, you know, I don't know, is revolutionary, revolutionary the right word to describe what's happened in the media sector? Um, you know, and, and there's been some questions about industry cohort risk. Um, how do you think about sort of the media super, you know, ability to sort of connect up to the changing environment of, of media as well as, a, as an industry? Yeah, no, look, it's a good question. And, um, and I think there's a couple of responses. So, um, so first of all, let's just talk about media super. So media super covers the printing, media, entertainment and arts sectors. Um, and all three of the, well, the two of those sectors, the printing uh, industry has been through uh, very substantial change over the last uh, 10 years. Um, and there've been a lot of uh, job losses and corporate mergers. Um, so significant change there. Then the media industry, again, lots of job losses uh, in broadcast media and print media. Um, not so much in the arts and entertainment sector, apart from the shutdown in March, when, you know, on that day, uh, just about all our actors and crew lost their jobs. And I might come back to that. Um, but so while we've had significant job losses across those sectors, the other thing we need to remember is that the industry funds don't hold 100% of the market in those sectors in terms of membership. So in our case, um, we've recently succeeded in getting two of the big printing companies to switch to Media Super as their default fund, uh, but none of the big media companies have Media Super as their default fund. They have uh, their own, um, you know, corporate master trusts. Um, so we don't hold 100% of the market. Uh, we don't even have 50% of the market. So while we members lose, have lost jobs and, and that's been difficult and challenging, uh, we've still got a lot of market upside if we're good at uh, putting forward our offer, which is a superior offer to most of the corporate funds, uh, promoting that offer and recruiting new members. So in fact, over the last 12 months, Media Super has actually had an increase in the number of contributing members, a significant decrease in the number of inactive members, uh, uh, partly because of the changes in the law and the, the transfer out of in low balance inactive accounts. But we've had an increase in contributing members and an increase in contributions. Um, so, and, and I know that's the case for a number of other industry-specific funds that whilst the headline numbers say you must lose members because they've lost their jobs, um, that assumes that they've got 100% of the market and they don't. It also assumes that people leave your fund when they lose their jobs. Um, and that's also not the case. Um, so I don't mind sharing with you, for example, our biggest single source of new members and rollovers into the fund are people from the News Corp corporate fund as they leave News Corp because they know that they get flipped into a uh, very expensive uh, retail option if they leave the company uh, and uh, they uh, move their super into media super uh, very regularly, very often. And ever since I've been there, seven years, uh, the News Corp fund has been the biggest single source of new members and roll-ins. 
What what do you put it down to in terms of the the drive? You know, is it that they stay in the media industry and they they like the philosophy behind Media Super's investment style? Is it the branding of Media Super? Um, I know Media Super's done a lot of work in terms of investing back in the sector. You bought some violin, I remember. You talked about a couple of years ago and invested in a number of um, movies. Is is that sort of part of this the 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 sales pitch of of, of Media Super? Uh, yeah, most certainly. Um, my attitude has always been that if you're a mid-sized fund, uh, which at $6 billion, we're about the 19th or 20th uh, largest industry fund, right? But we're in that pack of $2 billion to $10 billion funds. If you're a mid-sized fund, then your offer can't simply be that we're a service provider like other service providers. Your offer has to be that we are a part of the industry, supporting the industry, supporting the growth of the industry or the changes in the industry um, and investing back into the industry and investing back into jobs. Um, You know, otherwise uh, people could go into, you know, a big fund like Australian Super and get a very good return and very low fees. So, uh, yes, we have a high degree of loyalty, I think, we like to think, I think the numbers show it, uh, because we aren't an external service provider to the indus- to our industries. We are a part of our industries. We're directly involved in them and we invest back into them. So uh, perhaps we'll come back to some detail later when we talk about, you know, rebuilding Australia. But, yeah, we have a film and television financing fund. We have an R&D financing fund. We're looking at investing in uh, creative tech, ventures, early stage seed funding. Um, But we also have partnerships with all of the major organisations in our industry um, and support them. Uh, The other thing I'd say, just harking back to to sort of industry-specific funds, um, many other funds like us also have growth sectors. So whilst there's been uh, massive restructuring the printing industry, for example, there's been massive growth in graphic design. And so we are recruiting members in the graphic design sector, uh, which, as I say, has experienced massive growth. Whilst there have been uh, losses on of uh, journalist jobs at print media and even very recently at News Corp and very recently, uh, you know, around the country, uh, there's been a growth in online uh, media. Um, there's been a growth in uh, various... Uh, uh, you know, writing forums and stuff like that. So uh, so it's not all doom and gloom. And, again, if people looked at the numbers, they would see that, yes, a number of industry-specific funds are impacted by job losses, but many of them also have growth sectors uh, in which they're working and, and which is the reason why we're still growing. Mm-hmm. These funds are still growing. Um, there's been a lot of uh, uh, coverage of Host Plus uh, as a fund significantly exposed to job losses because of the pandemic. Um, but Host Plus is a really strong fund that's performed very well and has, uh, you know, a very good investment strategy and produced good good results. And it'll still be here next month and the month after that. Uh, no matter that, yes, they have been uh, hit harder than most in terms of the early access scheme, uh, but it's nowhere near a fatal blow. Mm-hmm. Let, let's go back to some of the comments about sort of the new industries that are coming there. You know, what's the strategy in terms of trying to recruit those members? Because you know, a number of funds sort of discuss the the challenges and the costs associated with now trying to attract new members. It's, it is quite a uh, a timely, um, uh, sorry, a, a time-consuming process and also a costly process. You know, w- what's the process yeah. look like for for Media Super? Yeah, no, that's true. It's it's. Uh, I always put it this way that it's a whole lot. Uh, it, it's way more difficult and time-consuming and costly to find graphic designers working freelance uh, from their bedrooms or their studies or their lounge rooms. Uh, than going on to a uh, printing site with 400 workers 
and uh, running some education and uh, and recruitment programs. It's a whole lot different. So uh, there's a much greater reliance on uh, online uh, communication uh, and online recruiting. As Media Super, we're expected to be about the best at that. Uh, I don't think we're the best, but we're getting better. We're pretty good. We're getting better. But it goes back to what I said to you before, that we are actively involved in the life of our industries. So if we take graphic design, for example, uh, we have a partnership with AGDA, the Australian Graphic Design Association. Um, We also obviously work with the AMWU, one of our sponsor unions. Um, And we uh, just, uh, when there are major events happening, uh, major activities, um, professional development activities, uh, awards, celebrations in that sector will be there and will be there in a very uh, prominent and upfront way. So um, that's how we connect with people is that we are connected and plugged in to that industry through the organisations and the forums uh, that they uh, work through. Mm-hmm. Let's let's transition to sort of internally within the funds. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of with Host Plus in terms of performance and then also the costs. With a $6 billion fund, you know, how do you try to balance the performance versus the whole administration cost? I know Media Super has outsourced um, a lot of its approach. You know, does that still have weight in, in, the, in the current size of, of Media Super? Um, how do you think about that backdrop? Uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think, uh, I would change any of the, uh, the arrangements that we've got or the structure that we've got. Um, so we outsource administration and we out uh, and uh, you know we outsource or don't don't insource uh, investment management. Um, uh, look again, I think we can talk a lot about the the theory of different approaches. I just look at the results. Really, I'm just a simple country boy who looks at the outcomes. Um, we've turned uh, our fund from a, a poor performance six years ago uh, to finish uh, third uh, on the super ratings tables for 2019. Um, so we're in the top 10. We're first quartile across one, three and five years. So performance, a big tick. Uh, on fees, uh, we've got amongst the lowest fees. Uh, we're under pressure on fees, as all of the funds are, because of the you know the various costs and the uh, the outflow of uh, inactive accounts, but on fees, our fees are lower than most of the big funds. Uh, uh, not Australian Super, but but many other of the other big funds. So performance tick, fees tick. Uh, on the APRA heat map, I think there were thirteen funds who got straight A's, um, uh, all blank squares. Uh, we were one of the funds that. Uh, got straight eyes, had no uh, traffic light colours there. So you can do it. We run a pretty uh, lean operation, I think, where uh, we put a lot of pressure on fund managers in terms of fees. Um, When I first came on board, that was one of the areas I focused on. I think in our first year we managed, or our first two years, we managed to uh, pull our fund management fees down by about 17 um, basis points. Uh, so you can run a pretty efficient fund. It's getting harder because the regulatory and compliance demands and costs are getting higher and that's where we're having to add staff and other funds would be experiencing the same thing. Um and it's also getting harder because of the um, completely unwarranted government attacks on industry super funds, which we might come back to, uh, which chews up a lot of time and a lot of members' money for um, some inexplicable uh, reason. Um, so, look, as I say, and we're not the only fund, we're not the only mid-sized fund that has strong performance and low fees. There are others. Uh, so, like, scale is important. Uh, I get that. Um, I'm a chartered accountant by training, um, so I've been through that sort of background. But it isn't everything. 
Um, and for example, you know, large scale means that the large funds can't invest in some of the things that we can invest in. So we can invest in small caps and micro caps. Uh, they can't because they're too big uh, and they can't get placed. Um, we can invest in three and five and $10 million opportunities that they can't invest in. Um, one of our best investments is a partnership with an American outfit uh, that invests uh, the opportunistically in um, areas like distressed debt, credit, but also uh, small private equity deals. Um, and last year that delivered us 17% return. Mm -hmm. uh, we're small enough to be able to do that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, yes, scale is important. Yes, there's pressure on costs and probably in the last 24 months, that's been one of the big changes, the pressure on costs. Um, and that's making it harder for us. Um, I think we acknowledge that. Uh, but you can still make a pretty good fist of returns for members and outcomes for members when you're our sort of size. Is there is there much merit to sort of the pooling of, of different funds and so forth? I know a lot of small funds have got together with people like IFM and and done sort of club deals. You know, is that the way that you know, some of the smaller funds that maybe don't have the scale can get access to maybe bigger deals or do you still feel that there's enough value in some of the smaller um, parts of the market? Oh, no, well, look, certainly IFM and ISPT, they are two of the great success stories of industry funds over the last 20 years. When you look at IFM, it's one of the world's biggest infrastructure investors. It's delivered superior returns for us for some completely well, inexplicable reason. Uh, Mr Wilson seems to think that that's a problem. Uh, and I don't know why Mr Wilson's got a problem with industry funds delivering superior returns to their members. And IFM and ISPT are a key part of that story. Uh, and certainly for the mid-sized funds, uh, IFM and ISPT are very important to us, very important. And they've delivered absolutely outstanding results. Um, and it's not unusual for investors to pool their funds into a vehicle that they jointly own and control. It's as if, you know, the, the criticism of Wilson and others seems to be that this is somehow unusual. It's completely normal. Um, I've spent a lot of time before I came to work for super funds in the corporate sector. We would do joint investment deals, joint ventures uh, on a very regular basis. Um, and, and it is one of the reasons we've got superior returns mm. are the likes of IFM and ISPT. I think um, uh, the other thing that I've been promoting that, that hasn't quite got legs yet, but... Um, there is an option, I think, for some mid-sized funds to federate uh, with other funds, and that is to, uh, for example, combine their investments, uh, combine their back office but still maintain their specific industry focus and service those industries, you know, under their own brand. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of an expanded uh, option on the um, Catholic Super Equip uh, tie-up recently, sort of a variation on that theme. So I, I think some funds will be looking at how do you do that. Mm. Let, let's go to one of the other issues that the government's been having a go at a number of people have sort of questioned, and that's governance. Um, you know, Historically also you, you took both the CIO and CEO role. Um, sort of curious on your thoughts about governance and also, you know, the the – appropriateness of, of a CIO slash CEO role of, of a single person? Uh, well, if you mean governance in the broad, not just on investment. Um, uh, that, that's correct, yeah, the, the broad, yeah, the broad I, governance I, of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I guess, um, look, I think Senator Bragg's done us a favour with the release of his book in that um, he's been honest enough to basically say... The reason I don't like industry funds is because they've got unions on the board. Um, so, you know, good on him for coming out and saying that. My response to that 
uh, first of all, is um, the governance structure is under the law, equal representation. So they're employers as well as unions and uh, the critics always seem to just push that to one side, that there are as many employers on our board as there are union nominees and same on uh, all the other industry fund boards. Um, uh, secondly, uh, what is the problem with a governance structure that has delivered superior returns at lower fees that has not robbed their members, that has not charged people for services not rendered and has not charged dead people. So what is the problem here that we're trying to solve? Um, and there isn't one. So if the masters of the universe are so good at managing investments, um, let's go through the litany of financial corporate failures uh, HIH, for example, Enron, for example, Lehman Brothers, for example, Storm Financial, for example. Um, are those the sort of people they'd rather we have on our boards than people who are directly connected with the industries, directly connected with the employers and the members, and therefore not only have a fiduciary responsibility, but have a you know, moral obligation to our members and our employers. So I think it's our most powerful um, model. And again, um, if you just want to work on evidence-based assessments of different models, uh, the industry fund models produce the best outcomes. Oh, look, the, the outcomes have been have been fantastic, definitely. I guess the, the flip side and, 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 you know, someone who wants to agitate the sector will say, okay, hold on, you've got the representation there, but you talk about fiduciary responsibility. Do we have enough talent that sits on a lot of these boards that actually have an understanding of also the fiduciary responsibilities that sit, you know, within their remit? Um. Uh, and again, I think the answer is is twofold. Uh, on the positive, the answer is yes, because uh, so if I look around uh, uh, the media super board, for example, um, two lawyers, uh, one former uh, listed company CFO. Uh, uh, I'm just I'm straight. A couple of other uh, CEOs who've who've held uh, significant positions in corporations uh, with experience in treasury and stuff, you know, it's the suggestion seems to be that uh, if you're media super, for example, that what we've done is dragged a couple of printers, a couple of journos and some actors and shoved them on a board and said, look after this money. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't work like that. We, we seek nominees and the sponsor organisations put forward nominees who've got a variety of skills and abilities. So that's the positive response I'll give you. And I'll go back to the other response. So if the financial masters of the universe is what our option is, why would we want people like that who've delivered the outcomes, you know, so many financial disasters to us? I think we've got the better balance, frankly. And again, the outcomes prove it. Um, in terms of investment management, um, yes, the board ultimately makes the investment decisions, makes it on the advice of investment committee, uh, but it also engages uh, highly talented professional asset consultants, in our case, frontier advisors, um, and employs highly professional and talented uh, CEOs and CIOs. Um, so it's not as if, again, we're just grabbing a bunch of people off the shop floor and saying, hey, figure out what to do with this money. Um, we've got as professional a group of people involved in managing our funds as many of the bank funds have. Let, let's take it closer to to the members. Um, and obviously we have a default system and you know, have a balanced fund that, that's out there. Curious to get your thoughts on on whether we need to have more tailored solutions um, for, for members um, and, and whether the current default system does serve the purpose for the, for the general member. Um, it's an interesting question, an interesting debate. I think 
on balance, the system works well. Um, and I think, again, the results show that. Uh, in our case, about 75% of our members are in the default option. Um, that's not just because they've all been defaulted there. Some members choose the balanced option because they like the look of the balanced option. Um, and the default options have delivered good returns over the journey. Um, so, you know, again, I sort of start to wonder about what is the problem that you're trying to solve, and I'm just uh, digging for some numbers, but I think uh, our returns, for example, uh, over 10 years are about 8.5%, um, and, and, um, and the same uh, since inception, uh, about 8.5% per annum. So, you know, I think that's that's a pretty good outcome uh, in the circumstances. Um, and members who who do want to make a choice have choices in all of the funds. They've got plenty of choices in our fund. Um, and we spend a lot of time and effort on member engagement, on member education and on uh, trying to get members to talk to our financial planners. And we think that, that's a that's one of the key focuses of Media Super. Uh, a few years ago, we developed a thing called Members' Best Interest Scorecard, which kind of preceded the regulator's uh, version of the outcomes test. Um, and our Members' Best Interest Scorecard was predicated on the proposition that if you engage members, which you can do if you're directly involved in the industries and if you, uh, you know, regularly in touch with your members, if you engage them, you can get them involved in education. If they get involved in education, then you can steer them in the direction of advice. If they get advice and take advice, they'll make good decisions and they'll get a better retirement outcome. Uh, and so the option is there for people who want to make their own choices, want to make their own decisions, need advice to help them to do that. But there's a lot of people who just don't want to go down um, that path. And, you know, to some extent you, you do have to be a bit careful about this attitude that everybody should be choosing every time uh, where their money goes uh, because, you know, in the last two months, yet again, we've had a number of members who switched to cash after the crash, crystallised the loss, don't switch back and have missed out on a 35% uplift uh, since uh, the bottom of the market. Um, so those who've been defaulted into the balanced option uh, and who haven't, uh, made a, a, a choice or haven't switched out are in about the same position they were uh, back in February. Um, that's probably a pretty good thing. What What do you think's missing from the financial advice space you know, at, at the moment? And there's a lot of questions about how to deliver financial advice best. You know, it's it's a very costly part of of um, the process. You know, what what could be done to maybe sort of help? Um, educate members on sort of financial literacy and also giving advice, I guess, at, also at scale, right? There, there's a big cost issue there. Yeah, look, it's probably uh, it's probably the subject of a whole separate um, discussion and uh, podcast, Alex. Uh, look, I think simply we, we... I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I don't think that we've uh, been very good at uh, explaining to people what financial advice is and the benefit of taking advice and paying for it. Um, so I think we've got a lot of work to do uh, on that. Um, you know, people sort of automatically know that if they need a lawyer, they'll go and see a lawyer and they'll pay a lawyer. And if they need an accountant, a tax accountant, for example, uh, they'll go and see one and they're prepared to pay for it. Um, but we haven't got a community-wide, I think it's getting a lot better um, and, and, you know, and I thank the media 
for some of that. So some of the uh, financial uh, supplements and the money supplements, the wealth supplements uh, in our daily newspapers um, have really helped in this regard. But I still think there's a long way to go for people to understand that uh, getting advice and taking advice is good medicine and worth the cost of the prescription. Um, and I spend, you know, I can say, because I'm not allowed to give advice, you know, um, uh, when people in the pub on Friday night uh, ask me what my advice is in relation to their super, uh, first of all, I tell them I'm not allowed to give them personal advice. Uh, but secondly, I tell them that the best advice I can give you is go and see a financial planner. Now, uh, it is a costly exercise and I think we've got some way to go yet. I mean, I think there was there was a time when we all thought robo-advice uh, might be the silver bullet. Uh, I think it's been helpful and it's been useful, and particularly for younger people who are uh, used to sort of playing with online tools. Um, but I'm not sure that it's been as helpful for older people moving towards retirement, needing to make some decisions. Um, we've, uh, I think many of us have, have put quite a bit of resource into telephone advice. Um, and I think that's working pretty well. Face-to-face -face advice is still really useful for the people who really need it, um, but it is getting them to accept that they need to pay a fee and that they'll get a benefit, they'll get a return for the payment of that fee. So, you know, I'm not sure how I go about that. We, we do try and spend time on big sites, of which there are fewer every day, but on big workplaces uh, with financial education programs that does explain to people how advice works and the benefit of taking advice. Uh, but I still, I think we've got a long way to go. I think there, there's still some uh, regulatory constraints around the roles of financial advisors that, that need to be looked at as well. But as I say, that's a kind of another whole separate debate. I mean, I think, again, in simple terms, the bottom line is um, we need to encourage people to take advice and we need to be able to steer them towards someone who can give that advice uh, free of bias and free of conflict. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Look, I think you know, in terms of a, a wrap-up question, you've obviously had a little bit of a health scare in, in recent years, um, You know the importance of health and, and balance in life. Um, have you got any comments there? Uh, yes, but if... That's your wrap-up question. I'm, I'm going to momentarily take control of the interview and, uh, and just go back to one thing that I didn't want to talk about or expand on, and that is um, the role of superannuation in terms of, in uh, you know, investing in Australia uh, and uh, helping us on the way, on the road out uh, from the current pandemic uh, because I did want to go back to... Uh, what's been happening over the last 24 months uh, in respect of industry super funds in particular. And so just a couple of points, if I may. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, governments have to stop constantly changing the rules. They just have to stop doing it. Um, get it right, then leave it alone. Uh, because it makes it very difficult for super funds to look long-term and invest long-term if they don't know what the policy is going to be, um, you know, in the next six months. Um, the second thing I'd say is this government, it needs to stop with the hypocrisy. Um, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer call on us to invest in Australia almost every other day for the last couple of weeks to invest in the rebuilding of the economy, uh, which we're keen and able to do, and we already do, but at the same time, they let Wilson and Bragg mount constant attacks aimed at destroying industry funds. So when the Prime Minister says people need to put their weapons down, well, his lot need to put their weapons down as well. So, you know, a couple of examples. Through IFM, which is part of 
the attack, um, we invest billions between us in airports and roads and ports and renewable energy generation and will continue to do so. But Mr Wilson thinks there's something wrong with that. Um, the activities of the House Economics Committee, well, they're so blatantly biased as to be uh, not funny at all. And it's just part of a deliberate coordinated attempt to undermine public confidence in industry super funds. And the only reason you can come up with it is because it can't be on performance and it can't be on fees and it can't be on, uh, it can't be on um, uh, how we act because no less than a Royal Commission found that there were no issues with how we act. So it is just because they don't like the idea of unions being involved somehow in the management of capital. Um, so as I say, we're, we're all of us uh, ready to invest. In Media Super's case, um, you mentioned before, we've got a $80 million uh, revolving Australian film and television financing fund. We've put more than $200 million into 150 film and TV projects in this country. Uh, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, film and TV production was one of the first things to be shut down. And on that one day, uh, all of the actors and crew in this country lost their jobs. And for some bizarre reason, the government chose uh, not to support the creative arts until very recently and under pressure from the Victorian government. So we've got, in our example, we've got more than 40 million of that revolving fund ready to deploy into new film and television productions in Australia as it ramps up again. Um, we've got a $20 million research and development financing fund that invests simply in innovative companies in Australia. We've committed to a creative tech ventures fund in partnership with Queensland University of Technology. Um, other funds will have their other um, uh, investment funds ready to deploy as well. So it's just quite baffling to me to pick up a newspaper and every second day see the Prime Minister and the Treasurer say, we want industry funds to, at one stage, I think we were being asked uh, to bail out Virgin, uh, for example. Um, for that to happen on the one hand, and then for these ideologically driven attacks with no other substance to be allowed to continue is just, it's, it's just hypocrisy at its worst. So uh, thank you for letting me um, no, you've, hi you've hijacked my conversation, which is, which is fine, which I'll, I'll throw back another question, which is around sort of daily liquidity, right? And a lot of people are still expecting daily liquidity, daily pricing and unit pricing for, for super funds. You know, does that still, you know, is that still critical in, the, in this environment? Should we go to monthly, you know, withdrawal rates and so forth? If, if super is truly a long-term, you know, investment, isn't there a bit of a disconnect between daily, you know, daily pricing and daily liquidity for, for people to, you know, to withdraw their money? Um, yeah, I think that that is an issue and um, uh, and to some extent uh, it's our fault. Um, so, for example, um, uh, those, those of us who subscribe to and provide data to uh, the ratings agencies uh, are in, in some respect, uh, you know, on, on the one hand is being transparent although we publish our returns on our websites anyway, so we're transparent there. On one hand, it is being transparent. On the other hand, it is encouraging uh, people to look at, um, you know, performance tables on a more regular basis than they ought to. Uh, now, having said that, the ratings agencies are at least only putting out things monthly uh, and major reports quarterly rather than, you know, daily or more currently weekly. Um, so to some extent, I, th I think we have to have a look at that as well um, uh, because we shouldn't have people uh, playing with their super uh, as if it's a day trading account. And, you know, one of the things that really worries me, you would have seen the data that in the last two months, the number of day trading accounts set up uh, for share trading uh, is I think three times the normal level. I think it's worse than that. There's uh, a few million in the US. I, I did a podcast actually yesterday about the Robin Hood traders that are taking over markets and uh, 
thinking that this is the easy win um, and, and we definitely don't want that to be the the same yeah. sort of approach that people use their super. And in some cases, there's been discussion that people have been doing, taking early access, early release and using that money for their day trading account. So there's some real issues out there um, with, with how people oh. are viewing their money. Oh, no, I'm sure that's right. Um, but look, I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely connected to daily unit pricing. Uh, we do weekly unit pricing, but uh, because unit pricing is is more a matter of uh, being fair to members uh, as they come in, make contributions, switch options, move out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's not that so much as, you know, the league tables being published on a perhaps more regular basis. You know, there are some funds who've stopped subscribing to the um, uh, to the ratings agencies uh, for the very reason that you've raised, is that they said, no, no, we're long-term investors and we should be focused on, and we, and we are largely focused on, we, uh, for all of our options, uh, we have an investment objective and our key focus should be on delivering that investment objective and we shouldn't be concerned about uh, as much as we are and as much as the regulator seems to be about your relative performance against other funds. If you've honestly put forward, here's an investment objective and you've reached it or exceeded it, um, that should almost be enough, I think, provided the objective's a reasonable one and, you know, not a very low bar. Well, the flip, uh, the flip side to that objective, I guess, is is thinking about the risk, right? It's very easy to, to specify an outcome and have performance and so forth. But, you know, whenever you look at performance tables, there's really not a... Um, a clear measure to actually understand the underlying risk. And that's been one of the questions that's come up against a number of funds that have performed very well on one and two and three year performance rates. And and then people questioning, well, hold on, have they got the same risk as our balance fund? You know, how, how do we make that fairer? Oh, I think that's right. I think, uh, well, so a couple of things. There is um, uh, at least uh, one organisation that puts out a... Uh, performance uh, table based on risk return, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is Rainmaker from memory. Um, And uh, I know that because Media Super ranked in the top five on a risk return uh, basis. Uh, So we were pretty pleased about that. I think there does have to be some work done on uh, what is the definition of balanced and growth um, and a bit of tightening up uh, in that area so that people... uh, you know, who don't have the depth of knowledge of the system as we do, can be sure that they're comparing apples with apples or at least apples with something, you know, approaching fruit uh, rather than comparing uh, different uh, options. Mm-hmm. Well, on the fruit topic, can we move back to health and balance in life? Sure. <laughs> yeah, look, um you know, obviously we think uh, work-life balance is pretty important um, and for me right now pretty important. Um, and I always said this to our staff and remind them all the time that our job isn't just about retirement outcomes. Our job is to get members safely to a comfortable retirement. Um, and what I mean by that is, Uh, If it was just about retirement outcomes, for example, we wouldn't have group insurance. That would be somebody else's responsibility. Uh, But we're required to offer that sort of insurance. And uh, part of that is about helping people get safely to a comfortable retirement, including those who are forced into early retirement because of injury or illness. So I think we need to focus on the journey, not just on the end destination. So that's why industry funds, for example, um, uh, under, uh, took initiatives like uh, Superfriend, our Mental Health and Wellbeing Foundation, that offers support to our members and employers in terms of mental health and wellbeing. Um, it's why we've looked at our own insurance policies in terms of our own members and where probably the only fund that covers members working in war zones because we've got journalists who work in war zones. So 
under every other policy I've seen, that would be excluded. In our policy, it's not. Um, it's why we get involved in supporting campaigns for uh, journalist freedom, um, a very uh, and journalist safety at work, uh, which is pretty topical given a um, uh, US police just several days ago beat up on a couple of Australian journalists live on TV. Um, and it's why we work with major employers, particularly in the printing industry, we've worked with major employers to roll out um, uh, physical and mental uh, health and wellbeing programs because our job is to get members safely to a comfortable retirement. Um, so I think, again, we can talk about it, but we've actually collectively industry funds, particularly through an initiative like Superfriend, which is terrific, um, have have um, walked the walk, not just talked the talk. And, and personally, for you, you know, what what comes next? Is it is it just a matter of a uh, time of reflection? Um, are you still going to be involved in the industry? What, what's what's the plan? Uh, the plan at the moment is to get to the first of July. Um, uh, uh, hopefully completing all the things that we need to do by the 30th of June. Uh, it's it's pretty intense. People will tell you, I'm sure, it's been pretty intense uh, over the last uh, four or five months. Uh, I still hope to be involved in some way in industry super. Um, uh, separately, I uh, uh, currently chair a uh, board of a not-for-profit involved in the vet sector in uh, skills training and development, which is another really important part of the road out from the pandemic. So uh, I've got a lot of um, time and energy to put into that, uh, which I'm pretty happy about because uh, there'll be a lot of uh, activity in uh, skills development in Australia over the next 6, 12 months, uh, reskilling, upskilling, retraining people. Um, but, yeah, I hope that I'll um, find uh, some way to contribute. It won't be in a full-time work role. Um, but uh, but there are other ways. And look, I got a uh, a lot of mates in the industry. Got a lot of good colleagues, and um, I'm sure part of my time will be spent just on the phone, uh, shooting the breeze, and um, uh, and you know sharing some ideas uh, around the place. All right, Graham, that's been a fantastic conversation. I wish you all the best with the next stage, and I'm sure we'll be back in touch. Okay, Alex, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.